Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The union representing many of New York's nursing home workers says the state health department's proposed rules on minimum staffing requirements fall short and undermine the intent of the 2021 law. More from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Representatives of the Healthcare Workers Union, SEIU 1199, say the new rules won't solve New York's staffing shortages. They worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic when over 10,000 nursing home residents died from the disease. Nursing home operators have argued they can't meet the new standards, which require a daily minimum of three and a half hours of clinical care for each resident because there simply aren't enough workers. But Grace Bogdanov, the union's vice president for Western New York, says that's a myth. She says there are enough nurses and certified nurses assistants available, but poor working conditions, including inadequate wages and benefits, have led many to seek employment elsewhere. The reality is that there are enough nursing home workers to meet the standard. Our experience tells us that rather than a shortage of workers, employers are actually driving workers away from the bedside by offering low wages, poor benefits, and operating ineffective recruitment and retention policies and practices. The union says those policies have led to an annual staff turnover rate of 45 percent. The law to impose new minimum standards of care was approved by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo and the legislature in May of 2021. It was to take effect in January of 2022, but Governor Kathy Hochul postponed its start until April. She cited a worker shortage due to the pandemic. In August, the state health department issued revised draft regulations. The union and other advocates say they are most concerned about a proposal to eliminate a penalty of up to $300 a day for nursing homes that don't comply with the law's requirement if the home's operators can demonstrate that there were mitigating circumstances for their failure to obey the law. Richard Mollett, executive director of the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, says the law can only be meaningful if it is properly enforced. Sadly, DOH's proposed regulations go in the opposite direction, favoring powerful industry interests over vulnerable seniors and workers who, though we call them heroes, are often exploited. The health department is also proposing that compliance for the daily minimum standards of three and a half hours of clinical care would be measured on a quarterly basis, not a daily basis. Beth Finkel with AARP says that would allow the practice of understaffing on weekends to continue and means that on some days residents would not even get a minimum standard of care. No, people need help every single day. People need minimum care every single day. It can't be one day you give them one hour and another day you give them four hours. It doesn't work like that. People have needs every single day. The new proposed regulations also say that if a nursing home can't prove that mitigating factors exist to prevent them from following the law, then they would be fined an even stiffer penalty of up to $2,000 a day.
Nursing home owners continue to disagree with the union and the other advocates. They say complying with the law will result in fewer beds at nursing homes and even the closure of some homes. More than 300 for-profit and non-profit homes have filed two separate lawsuits challenging the law. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Officials along the northern border are anticipating a change in Canadian restrictions by early October. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. News reports in Canada indicate that the government is considering allowing the Arrive Can app to expire on September 30th. All travelers entering Canada must first download the app and enter COVID-related health and vaccination information. The North Country Chamber of Commerce and its members have been urging Canadian officials to stop using the app as a requirement to cross the border. President Gary Douglas notes that cross-border traffic continues to be lower than pre-pandemic levels and says Arrive Can is a key reason. Post-April 1, when Canada eliminated most of its testing requirements, we only got back to a 50% level uh, compared to 2019 for the same months. Now here at Champlain, north of Plattsburgh, we got back to 70%, which is extraordinarily high. But that still means there's a 30% gap, and for most of the border, a 50% gap. The people aren't coming. Now, there's two reasons they aren't coming. One is arrive can. And then, of course, at some point, we have to get back to allowing unvaccinated people to travel. That is part of that 30 to 50% that aren't traveling as well. Vermont Governor Phil Scott was in Montreal on September 6th and 7th to meet with business and government leaders and attend the International Aerospace Innovation Forum. In Rutland on Wednesday, the Republican was asked about the border and noted it came up in Canada, too. There was a lot of pushback in Quebec in particular. They didn't like it. From my perspective, I do think it's hurt uh, some of the tourism from our Canadian guests. They don't want to come down because it's not that flexible. You have to use the arrive can and register within three days, 72 hours of uh, arriving at the border. It's just a little cumbersome. It doesn't allow that flexibility. From my perspective, I think it's been counterproductive and I wouldn't mind seeing it uh, be dropped altogether. There are three things that the North Country Chamber's Douglas would like the Canadian government to allow to expire by the end of September. It's looking very encouraging. One is to no longer make arrive can mandatory. It'll become voluntary, and it may still be useful for returning Canadians uh, who've made a lot of purchases they need to report to pre-do that and speed their crossing. Secondly, the restriction against uh, effectively entering Canada if you're unvaccinated. And the third is the continuation of random testing at the border. All three are due to expire on September 30th, and we're hopeful that all three are going to be allowed to expire. 
By all indications, a majority of Parliament is already at the point where it wants all this to go away. Most Canadian people do. Late Thursday, the CBC reported that a senior government source said the government had decided to make the use of Arrive Can optional and to drop the vaccination requirement for visitors entering Canada. The news broke as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau convened a cabinet meeting. A formal announcement is expected Monday, according to the CBC report. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. We're listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan? Well, usually in a political contest, the opposing candidates face each other in a debate, but it's increasingly become a strategy of politicians to avoid them. The case in point, we now have no debate between New York Governor Kathy Hochul and her opponent, Representative Lee Zeldin, the Republican representative from Long Island. They can't seem to agree on debates. You know, they have these games where I want multiple mm. debates, and I'll do one debate. You have some experience with this. I can remember mm. former Governor Mario mm. Cuomo trying to debate <laughs> Governor Pataki, and instead Pataki left an empty chair. Yeah, well, look, debates have always been antsy, that's for sure. And if you're ahead, you don't want to debate. It's that simple. If you're running behind, debates can only help you. And so you are for debates. We see this game being played again and again and again. And it's not only predictable, but in some ways it's boring, David. You can pretty well figure out who's where and who's on first based on the rhetoric that goes on around debates. And it's very rare that something happens that can change people's minds. But there is a chance, right? If you get in front of an audience, you might screw up, and that might affect people's perception. No question. And if you're losing, you want to debate, obviously. If you're going to lose, and the debate is one way out, and you can hope, as you just suggested, that the debate will show one candidate who is ahead to be weaker than expected, obviously that's something that has to be considered. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartalk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, 
program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Ukrainian hospital administrators and personnel visited the capital region this week to learn about area hospitals and how to best deliver care to the front lines as Russia's war with Ukraine continues. The Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupfel has more. The Ukrainian visitors are touring local hospitals, colleges, the state health department, and discussing how to deliver the best care and learn from American services. They will also meet with capital region lawmakers throughout the week. Father Michael Mishtuk of the Ukrainian Catholic Church in Watervliet was at Hudson Valley Community College in Troy to greet the visitors Monday. It seems like many doctors are at the front line, uh, or very close to the front line of war, and we as a church uh, um, helping with the medical uh, equipment, with, the, with the, all kinds of medical things. So I, I hope to, to get to know them, to see what, what their needs are, and hopefully maybe with their needs, and we can, we can help them uh, with their needs over there in Ukraine. Alexander Sahaidok is from Lviv and runs a hospital emergency department. He says the lives of all Ukrainians changed when Russia invaded. We have a war in the country, you know. Um, this war just started, uh, the big fuss of, of this war just started on the 22 of February when the Russia attacked us, our territory. Um, uh, this war now is actually not stopped. Uh, we are in the process and uh, we just used a lot of weapons from the U.S. also and uh, we just used the resource from opportunity uh, and helping around the world. Uh, we're just living like in a war country. We have the war time inside the country. It's called the war time, right? And uh, it's, it's so pity for my mind. It's terrible. According to the United Nations, more than 13 million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their homes since February, creating Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. Exact casualty figures are hard to come by since each country is reluctant to admit losses, but the United Nations Human Rights Office in late August documented nearly 5,600 civilians killed in Ukraine, though the actual toll is thought to be much higher. Sahaidok says he looks forward to learning more about emergency services and care in the U.S., which he thinks has more advanced emergency care. We already had a good training in Ukraine, but, uh, you know, maybe U.S. has more of uh, experience in that, and uh, they can share us the new ideas and the new training in the, the, that we can use in Ukraine. The visit was coordinated by the International Center of the Capital Region. Executive Director Jennifer Zhao detailed some of the events planned this week. We're trying to get them to as many people as we can. They're meeting with St. Peter's, Albany Med, and Ellis, and seeing how the different hospitals work. They're going to be touring their emergency departments. They're really focused on the emergency medicine as of right now. They're also going to be meeting with the faculty at Russell Sage, who will also show them their uh, it's like a special mannequin thing. <laughs> I don't know really what it's called. I think they know what it is. Um, but it's it's like a simulation for what, how the patients would respond. So we're hoping that they can see how that be, could be beneficial for training extra staff because, as we said, they're also shorthanded. So if they can get more people online trained and ready to go, then that's another area that we can help. 
She says doctors in Ukraine are overwhelmed responding to Russia's attacks. They also were asking about like sending doctors out into the field um, because whenever there is a bombing or there is a trauma, then they have to actually leave the hospital to go to those places. While recent news reports detail a recent string of setbacks for Russia, Sahaidok says Ukrainians on the ground are not yet celebrating. Yeah, we feel the power of that uh, and we just um, uh, make the new step in the war. Uh, but um, the Russian has not stepped down. Uh, we attacked and we just trying to keep our territory and uh, we hope that it will be not so, so long. Father Mishtuk says he has also heard cautious optimism from community members. The situation is, is tough. It's, it's difficult. Uh, uh, there is some hope, but there is, uh, you know, also we should understand that the Russia is not, you know, a country that will walk away. So it's, it's hope with, with mixed with uh, concerns. Zhao says no matter the outcome, she is glad the Ukrainian visitors get a break from the grinding war and experience the capital region. They're also all staying with individual home hosts. They're being hosted by volunteers in the capital region who are just very generous with opening their homes and hospitality. So we're hoping that they take back the spiritual and mental support that they're getting from these volunteers and just a little bit of a break from the stressful life um, that they are working with um, in their country. So we're really hoping that they can keep these connections intact when they go back and then have have those great memories to look back to. Reporting from Troy, this is Ashley Helpful. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government, politics, I'm David Gustina. In January 2021, officials celebrated the selection of the Port of Albany as the first offshore wind tower manufacturing site in the U.S. As we approach the two-year mark, the Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has this update. The goal of the $357 million project is to manufacture 150 offshore wind towers annually. Expectations include hundreds of new green energy jobs. Officials anticipated that capital region wind projects at the ports of Albany and Queemans will reap some $14 billion in investments. Port Senior Construction Project Manager Roddy Yagan says the project is currently in a pre-construction phase. Where we're also working in tandem, preparing for construction with all the union workers and different trade packages we're bringing on through Gilbane uh, while we have permitting progressing forward, working through our engineering consultant teams. In May, some objections were raised over tree cutting on 80 acres known as Beacon Island, greenlighted by the Department of Environmental Conservation. A group of Glenmont residents, including Nathaniel Gray, sued the port and the town of Bethlehem, claiming they weren't given proper notification. Two years ago, most of us were in the throes of crisis and weren't watching the the daily newspaper on, you know, those kinds of things. And so many of the residents did not know, myself included, that this was occurring at all until 80 plus acres of trees disappeared from our view. Uh, and then many of us saw things like 
you know, several clusters of dead baby animals in our yard. And some folks have reported dust clouds. And I know I have neighbors who are having um, their, their doctors have recommended their children get specific blood panels done. So that was the, the moment that we all discovered it. And, and that moment was less than six months ago. The port recently filed to have the lawsuit dismissed. The request for dismissal, I think, is not in earnest because they're not being forthright uh, about the fact that the project was very much uh, talked about to the community in as limited manner as possible. And to be honest, something we feel is that they weaponized a pandemic to keep a community misinformed or disinformed about a project that's going to have such a direct impact on all of our lives. CEO Richard Hendricks says it's in the hands of the judicial system and an environmental review is ongoing. Trees that were cut down uh, were, were done in accordance with uh, regulations that uh, we worked within. Uh, we had a, uh, a time frame in order to uh, protect endangered species that may be moving into the area after the time that the trees were, were cut down. That was the reason uh, the northern long-eared bat is known to come to that area, and they have uh, they have a, a large base that they are able to nest in around here. So it was it was found that with the trees being cut down, it would not inhibit their nesting during the summer months. Gagan says several evaluations have been accomplished. Part of the typical engineering review and design process are the uh, environmental impact statements, environmental assessments. So we've, we've developed and produced and submitted a draft GEIS, a final GEIS, a uh, draft supplemental, EIS and a final supplemental EIS. All of those, uh, sorry, generic um, environmental impact statements. So in all of those studies and assessments, there's portions for wildlife impact, groundwater, um, site, uh, community visual assessments, there's traffic impacts. Each one of these uh, considerations is, is covered through the typical review process. Hendrick adds the port has taken steps to ensure its neighbors are not left behind, including an environmental justice review. One of the things that we had to uh, undertake was a review of a, uh, an impact to the community that for generations has been left behind. The Ezra Prentice community is, is the closest uh, housing complex that would be to this uh, project. It, it's in the south end of the city of Albany. We worked closely with both the town of Bethlehem, the city of Albany, and the residents of uh, the Ezra Prentice Homes and the, uh, the improvements that can be made to their labor options and available positions. We cleared, and the, even the New York State Attorney General gave the approval on the process that we took where everything that could possibly impact the environmental justice community was addressed. Hendricks says the port is preparing for construction to begin in the first quarter of 2024 as the review process continues. Responding to questions from any of the uh, 
review agencies, supplying them with uh, all the documentation that they need to make a successful approval of the permits that they are reviewing. And then uh, once we, uh, and we feel confident we will, once we get those permits, uh, there's a uh, another step in the process where we have to give our notice of intent to proceed, but everybody will be on board and that uh, once the notice of uh, intent to proceed uh, for construction is filed, uh, within that uh, time frame that's required, uh, the uh, construction companies that are in line and have been hired will be uh, shovel ready to go. Bethlehem Town Supervisor David Van Leuven, a Democrat, says his excitement about the project hasn't waned and says it has already gone through the town review process. In my experience, uh, there's usually a fair amount of back and forth uh, between uh, regulatory agencies and project applicants. So um, I'm not feeling angst about it because I know that the uh, state and federal agencies are going to hold the, uh, the, the port as the project applicants to the, um, the highest standards, which is their responsibility, and that will allow them ultimately to move forward in a way that is um, good for the community and good for the environment and uh, allows us to get this important green energy infrastructure in place. Hendrick says an overall price for the project has yet to be determined. He warns the project is not immune to the inflation and supply chain disruption that the rest of the construction industry is experiencing. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2239. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.